Good morning, everybody. Uh, so usually on the first Sunday of the month, um, we've been doing a once-a-month series going through the entire book of Numbers, but I've also at the same time been preaching through Galatians, and we just did Galatians 3 last week, and Galatians 4 really rides on the argument that was being made in Galatians 3 and makes some more tangible applications of things that in Galatians 3 are very intangible and difficult to kind of like, okay, what do I, what do, I do with this now? Um, so it's, if that's where you were left last week, then chapter 4 might help you have something to be a little more anchored in and to take hold of. Uh, we're going to see this as we study this um, this morning again. That what was going on with the Galatian churches is you have Christians that Paul had originally taught. He had taught them the gospel and taught them the gospel in its purity, in its simplicity. And eventually what happened in the Galatian churches, as seemingly often happened, there were Jewish Christians who began teaching Gentile Christians that they also needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Basically, they've got to also become Jewish to really be children of God and related physically by circumcision and the keeping of the law back to Abraham. And this results in Paul writing what is easily in its tone his most frantic, emotionally charged, and urgent letter. And we'll see some of that um, in chapter 4. But the idea of Galatians is the reason Paul is so frantic is he's dealing with the reality of our freedom in Christ. And a contrast between our freedom in Christ being put at risk to going back into bondage. And a way to think about this is, you know, in American history, there is a history of slavery that most people tend to look back on and be very offended at the thought of the kind of slavery that we had at one time in this country. And we tend to be very thankful for um, the changes and reforms that were made over time. And just imagine if, once again, because of things like skin color, all of a sudden, people started not only advocating for slavery, but taking people back into slavery in the same way. And not a slavery that was in any way by goodwill, but kidnapping. And you just imagine the uproar and the offense that would be taken, the indignation that we would have over such a thing. And so Galatians challenges us in so many ways, just as so much of the New Testament does, to see things that are intangible, and they are spiritual, but they are also real. And if we see these things in a clearer reality, we treat them in a way that suits that reality. So in Galatians 3, he's really dealing ultimately with arguing for faith, and he contrasts faith and the law of Moses. Um, and I want to bring that up again because of where we're going to be segueing into chapter 4, and we're going to be dealing with a gospel-centered identity. Chapter 4 more deals with identity. And to reintroduce us back into the context of the argument here, I want to read chapter 3, verse 23 through 29, and just make some more introductory remarks about this context specifically before we start in chapter 4. So Galatians 3, 23 through 29. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. And he's talking specifically there about the law of Moses for the Jewish nation. We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So I want to try to illustrate this again. And a lot of these illustrations that I try to use to deal with the law and faith are not like perfect one-to-one illustrations, but, you know, just maybe help consider some of the principles at work here. So there are things that are good about the law. It is righteous, it is good, but it's good as a tool and as a testimony. There are certain things that a a law can't do, right? So I want to illustrate it this way today. My parents and my brother are all computer programmers. And what that means is when you use the internet or use your phone, they literally do the things that make cell phones usable and computer websites usable. If you want to order something on Amazon, watch something on your phone, text someone, all of that was designed and made possible because of a computer programmer doing things behind the scenes. Manual typewriters are useful and had their use for a time, right? And a manual typewriter, you can type out some of the same things, the same like words and letters that computer programmers use to program certain things. But if you use a manual typewriter and you type in the same things that my parents type to create a website or create an app or a program, is it going to do anything? No. So a typewriter is useful and especially was useful for its time. But in a sense, a computer is the grand fulfillment of what a typewriter was, so much so that some people, for like weird vintage reasons, want a typewriter. They like using them. But really, the usefulness of that is, is pretty much gone, right? And there's things that we do now that a typewriter just it can't do that because it's limited, right? The gospel deals with reality. The gospel not only deals with reality, it demonstrates reality, especially Jesus' life his death, his resurrection, the law could point to those realities. The law could show us the problem of sin, that there is a problem. The law could emphasize division with God and separation with God. The law could point to principles of holiness, the need to be holy, the need for reconciliation, principles of love. But the law could not pay the debt of sin. The law can't raise people back from the dead who are spiritually dead in their sins. The law can't make people clean who are unclean in their sins. The law cannot strengthen powerless people to serve God. The law cannot transfer our identity and citizenship from being earthly to being heavenly, from being earthly to becoming spiritual. These are things that the law could point to as a tool, but they are things that only God through Christ could fully accomplish. So, in verse 25, now that faith has come, and that's Jesus, a living embodiment of all that faith is, all that faith accomplishes, all that is accomplished through faith, we're no longer under a tutor. The usefulness of the law of Moses in terms of its authority, its religious authority, when Jesus came, it was gone. Um, One more thing to say about this with an emphasis on faith here. We tend to underestimate, and I say this we as in me too, and I think this is just generally very true. We underestimate the value of faith and the depth of what faith is and what we can learn about faith. You imagine a car mechanic, right? 
Cars are very simple. You get in it, you use it, you turn it on, whatever. You don't have to know much about a car to use it. Um, I don't know anything about cars, and I use one every day, right? But you imagine for somebody who is a mechanic who works with cars, they appreciate a lot more of what makes it work and the mechanics involved in it, right? Faith is important. And we aren't just using faith or looking at faith from the outside. Faith is a central part of our identity, our work with God, our relationship with God. Books like Galatians challenge us that if we're confused by these concepts or kind of lost when it's like law of Moses, faith, what's going on? What these things do is these contrasts, the tension, the arguments is bringing greater light to things that need clarity for me to understand them better. Because the better I understand God, the more I can serve him and imitate him. The more I understand faith, the more I can live by faith and embrace faith and grow in faith and develop my faith. So again, these things that seem so intangible, the more invested we are or want to be, the more useful and good they become. So that takes us into chapter 4. And I'm going to reread verse 11. And this chapter is just sections of contrasts you get of the spirit, not of the world. Um, I think in 12 through 20, Paul's contrasting himself with the false teachers, the Judaizing teachers. Then 21 through 31, you get a contrast between Abraham's children, Isaac and Ishmael. So we're going to start with the contrast he makes, citizens of the spirit, born of the spirit, not of the world. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the, under the elemental things of the world, seemingly talking about Jewish people under the time frame of the law of Moses. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which, to those by which, or which by nature, are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I fear for you that perhaps I, I have labored over you in vain. So this is, I think, the overarching principle here that I have on the board. What did the law do? It revealed and regulated slavery to a worldly or flesh-based life. Um, what the law could do is, again, it could emphasize our bondage to the world, our bondage to sin. It couldn't resolve that problem. It didn't take you beyond that problem, but it certainly could testify to God's power, God's righteousness. But again, what was the law? It revealed and regulated bondage to a flesh-based life. Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus reveals and regulates sonship, heavenly citizenship for a spirit-based life. So what Paul's getting to is it's not as if being a Christian and I don't think the problem was that they were denying that Jesus had come or denying that he had died on the cross or risen from the dead. You know, it seems clear that they had maintained those fundamental beliefs. 
But the point he's making is you aren't adding the law of Moses onto your faith as just kind of like a helpful supplement or just in case I need this, maybe it would be good for me just in case to put this into my faith. No, these things are in direct competition with one another and it's either one or the other. You're either having the one or you're exchanging one for the other. And I want you to note verse 5. Um, he says, so that, we, so that he might redeem those from under the law, that we might receive the adoption as, of sons. What is he saying there? Not just that thinking the law is continuing to be a religious authority is a problem only for the Gentiles. You know, so it's not just that the Galatians being Gentiles need to not see the law as the religious authority. It's that this is a problem for the Jews who are teaching this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 14. Remember when Paul had to confront Peter because Jews had come from Jerusalem to Antioch and when they arrived at Antioch, the Jews wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. Peter was carried away by this. Barnabas was carried away by this. And all the Jews ended up separating themselves from the Gentile Christians. And Paul corrected Peter in the presence of everybody about this. But notice verse 14, he says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. After Jesus rose from the dead, was a Jew still obligated to keep the law of Moses just as they were obligated formally before Jesus came? You don't need to turn here, but I've put in my notes as a reference. Um, it might be helpful to write down um, next to chapter 4, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 20. When Paul is talking about how he became a slave to all people for the gospel's sake, became all things to all men, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. So the point that Paul is making is Jesus came to redeem Gentiles, but also to redeem Jews from Judaism. You know, again, it's not that the law is bad. It's not that it didn't serve a critical purpose and continues to have a critical value. But seeing it as a binding authority now that faith has come demonstrates a deeper significant problem in understanding God and in understanding Jesus and how God works through Jesus. And this leads to the principle that I think is the climax of the argument in verse 6. That we've been made sons and daughters of God. The law emphasized distance with God, separation with God. The law couldn't make you a direct child of God. It didn't have the ability to do that. But what has Jesus done? He's redeemed us to be adopted children of God. The more we value and embrace that identity, it will inherently dictate our allegiances and our behaviors. There's times where Jesus in his ministry would use like unrighteous people as examples to teach a righteous lesson. Think about like Luke 16, the unrighteous steward. It's not that he was righteous, it's that he was unrighteous, but he did something in his unrighteousness that proves a good point anyway with identity. I think we can see in the world around us, and what I mean is people who struggle with like gender identity and stuff like that, that if somebody has a strong sense of identity, they tend to 
do things and have allegiances and behaviors that they want to do because of that inner sense of identity, right? That I need to be loyal to this identity. That's sinful. It's a bad thing, right? But in a positive and spiritual sense, we have an identity that's not tangibly visible. And the more we value that identity and understand the nature of that identity, what that means for us, the more we will live out that identity in ways that are visible through our allegiance to the teaching of Christ, our allegiance to the values of faith and the nature of faith. Our behavior will reflect Christ. Again, as we've talked about, faith is not just something that we do sometimes. Faith wasn't just something Jesus did at times. Everything in his life was based in faith. And what Paul is getting to is faith isn't just a part of our life. It becomes our identity, right? So we need to learn to understand the glory in verse 6 that we aren't just forgiven of our sins and no longer have to struggle with the guilt that we had before we were forgiven. And now we go to church sometimes, we sing some songs, we do some religious things, and boy, that feels good and kind of satisfies the conscience. It's that we are children of God, heirs with Christ, given all of the benefits of sonship, all of the promises involved in sonship, Because in the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 4, the difference he's getting to between a slave and a son is when a son of um, a father in a household, when they're under guardians and managers, they don't own everything yet. Just like a slave doesn't own anything in the household. So in the sense of ownership, they're the same. But once you become an adopted child of God, you have ownership sonship. You're an heir with Christ, right? So again, we just have to appreciate the nature of our identity in Christ. And if the Galatians would have embraced the nature of their identity, they would have had a lot more firmness and boldness against this teaching. And I think this is important to not miss. To give authority to the law of Moses is to assign power to something elemental, something that ultimately does not have power as Jesus and the gospel and God of power. Notice verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? I think the idea that Paul is getting to is this. You came out of one form of idolatry where you were just serving the elementary things. You were living in the world and held in bondage to the things in the world. And the law, now that Christ and faith have come, the law is just elemental things, worldly things. And for you to assign authority and power as if that has the ability to justify you, you have come out of one form of idolatry and have just been converted into another form of idolatry from idolizing one elemental thing to now idolizing a different elemental thing. So again, they've gone from one form of idolatry only to go into another. And I think this is the caution that we need to have. Idolatry tied to Jesus is extremely deceptive and also extremely destructive. You know, because again, with so many things that more relate to God and there's no clear, moral, peer-to-peer damage, you know, it could seem like, well, their religion is improving. Not only are they Christians, but now they go to Jerusalem and they get to go to, you know, keep the Passover feast and the Sabbath, and it could make them feel much more religious together. 
But again, this is Paul's most frantically toned and urgent letter, right? So again, there is nothing that we can put in competition with the authority that Jesus has. That only Jesus has the wisdom to regulate and have authority over a spirit-based life. When we try to add things in, create new systems, or treat man-made doctrines or convictions as if that has comparable authority with Jesus and the teaching of the apostles, it's not just something minor, but the attitude that goes in that direction and seeks that out, there's a catastrophic breakdown in understanding what faith is and the value of faith in our identity. So chapter 4 still, 12 through 20. Let's look at verse 12 through 20. And I want you to think about how Paul's coming to them created a bond of compassion, whereas the Jewish teachers were creating an environment of competition with each other, 12 through 20. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And again, seeming like Paul's saying, you who are Gentiles, me as a Jew was redeemed to become like a Gentile, but now you've become like a Jew. So verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you would seek them. And again, they're referencing the Jewish teachers. Verse 18. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So I want to notice something really quick before we get into some of the points that I have on the board here. Verse 12, when he says, you have done me no wrong. You know, Paul's not being frantic and very bold in his tone because he feels personally slighted or they've done something against him specifically, right? This is about their relationship with God and Paul's jealousy for the purity of that relationship. Verse 18, Paul's not jealous because someone else is popular among the Galatian churches and you know, he's jealous that they would, you know, honor someone else and follow someone else. You know, no, it's, it's good where if someone like Apollos or some other teacher comes and they enjoy that teacher and form a new relationship, that's, that's fine. The problem isn't jealousy over the relationship. It's not that Paul's feeling personally slighted. It, again, is about verse 20, or rather verse 19, Christ no longer dwelling within them and that needing to happen really just all over again. So the overarching point here, the gospel urges fellowship in a very unique way. And when you look at the way that Paul initially came to them in verse 13, did Paul come to the Galatians in a way that was socially intimidating? Did he come to them in a way that was impressive? Where Paul asserted himself, was loud and bold, put his foot down, no, he says in verse 13, he came to them in a sense in great weakness. Because of a bodily illness, he first came to them. And verse 14, it was a trial to them that he was in this condition. 
And yet, how did they treat Paul? They didn't despise or loathe his condition, but they received him as an angel of God, as Christ himself. So this illustrates something very important, that the gospel urges fellowship not on the basis of the color of our skin, our economic standing, our prosperity, our backgrounds or our interests, our hobbies. The gospel urges fellowship on the basis of the reality that Jesus brings to light. Our mutual brokenness, our insufficiency, and our inadequacy. And I've used these terms deliberately. Brokenness meaning what sin has broken and damaged in our lives. You know, the reason we need forgiveness and reconciliation with God, we've, we've been broken by sin. Insufficiency re- refers to like a quantity of something. We don't have enough of anything to fill our needs in relation to God. Inadequacy deals with quality. We do not have enough, but we are not enough. We can, act, we can never on our own do enough, be enough, have enough, but Jesus came to fill those needs. The gospel urges us to have fellowship on the basis of our mutual brokenness, insufficiency, and inadequacy. And what that does is it cultivates mutual compassion and not a culture of mutual competition with each other. So in contrast, when you look at verse 17, how did the Jewish teachers come to them? Were they cultivating an environment of honesty, humility, faith? It's the opposite approach, ironically, to how Paul initially came to them. Instead of cultivating an environment of mutual compassion and love and humility, they came to them and, as a Jew would do, if they didn't understand faith, they shut them out. And not not that they wanted to restrict themselves from them because they don't want fellowship with them. They said, they are seeking you even eagerly, but it's just, it's not honest. They're wanting you to like flatter them and become like them and honor them in a worldly way, and and then they'll have fellowship with you, right? But you have to become a Jew first, and then they'll be happy to receive you, right? This approach is childish. You know, I think about middle school, elementary school, high school. Um, I think about people treating it like it's some kind of, like, fraternity, right? Where you've got to first honor my clique and whatever it represents, and then we can have fellowship with each other. But it's, it's also manipulative, right? It's, it's trying to turn people in a direction that becomes more arrogantly motivated than it is in their best interest. So there's, there's a dishonesty and an arrogance in this. Look at chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Paul returns to this throughout this letter, just kind of planting these seeds that the way that the Jewish teachers are approaching fellowship is not being conveyed honestly. And if you really see what's going on underneath the surface, it just loses its draw and becomes sad. Look at verse 12, chapter 6. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. So again, like they're, they're making it seem like they're sufficient. They are adequate. And the reality is they're just not being honest about that. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
You know, I think about this, that they will feel more validated in what they believe in practice the more people buy into it, right? I've seen this approach, by the way. Like, I've tried to have studies sometimes with um, preachers and other churches, and sometimes they'll say things like, you know, is anyone being converted with your view of things? You know, there's lots of people who attend where I am. There's lots of people baptized where I am. So, you know, I don't see how your approach to the Bible is really going to reach people. And what they're saying is there's enough people validating their teaching that it doesn't really matter what the Bible says. All that really matters is, look, people buy into this. People follow this. People are here. Therefore, this is right, right? That's not a validation for truth. What matters is, what does God teach? What does Jesus teach? What do the apostles teach? These kind of approaches are childish, manipulative, dishonest, and arrogant. And if, if that's not enough to serve as a very clear contrast, I do want you to turn back to Mark chapter 10, and I want you to think about how does Jesus establish fellowship with us? How does Jesus seek us out And if we go back to these, again, very fundamental principles of faith, it exposes, again, just how opposite these approaches are to the way that Jesus is and was as a person. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse um, 42. This is when the disciples, ironically, were having a moment of competition, which one of them is the greatest one among them. Here's how Jesus responds, verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So just think about this. Did Jesus come in a way where he was holding on to privileges that he had a right to, advantages he had, rights that he had as the Son of God? How about even comforts that he had a right to have as the Son of God? Honor, dignity that he had the right to. No, Jesus, revealing faith, set all of those things aside, and he became the servant to others, to seek them out. Not on the basis of any personal privilege or competition, but through humility, washed even his disciples' feet when he was about to be crucified. So a lot of this, again, why is this such an urgent issue to Paul? It's because the attitude at work in this approach fundamentally contradicts the most central aspects of who Jesus was and how he trained us to think and to live. And if this becomes the very practical basis of our bond, not that we're trying to assert ourselves with each other or impress each other or look a certain way or you know, worry that if, if I confess a weakness or ask for prayers on a certain issue that maybe I'll look bad or maybe people won't respect me as much. If we try to get away from that and just accept that our bond is in our mutual need for grace, and mercy from God and each other, it cultivates humility, it cultivates faith, and a love that is more and more deeply rooted in God's grace. 
And I want you to see this is exactly where Paul is going in chapter 5, 13 through 16. As Paul is making his argument, he's not just writing one random subject after another, disconnected from the main point he's making. Paul is establishing principles first of the heart and faith and leading into attitude, identity, and application. Look at chapter 5, 13 through 16. And again, I, I want to urge you to see that this is the progression of these points that we're studying. Chapter 5, 13, For you are called the freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by each other. And look down further, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So again, as he's making competition, as he's making application, he's urging the Galatians to remember that you've got to be very careful about making fellowship into something that becomes a competition where you're trying to look a certain way, keep up a certain appearance, keep up a certain opinion from others. This is about having fellowship on the basis of grace, which encourages us to embrace the reality of our need. And so again, back to chapter 4, 21 through 31. Um, I think Paul kind of concludes this section of his argument. Um, Verse 21, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? And so not only does, his, does he make his point from his own example, the nature of who we are in Christ and what faith is, but I mean, wow. Okay, you're, you're concerned about what the law says. Let's bring the law into the equation. So 21 through 31. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now verse 25, note this. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who is born according to the flesh persecuted him who is born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So kind of like I mentioned in the Bible class, and if you you weren't here, I'll come back to this again um, through this section, that I think the way that the apostles and Jesus as well would reference the old law, the Old Testament in general, it was always to illustrate enhance or enforce a New Testament truth. So kind of like this where a spiritual point is being made. He says, well, this isn't just me speaking by my own initiative. The law supports this point. Now, this specific illustration does all of these three things. Paul is illustrating the difference between slavery and freedom in Christ, slavery to the law, freedom in Christ. He is enhancing the argument that he's been making and he's enforcing 
a point as well, that we're not under obligation to keep the law. And he's, again, deriving these conclusions from an illustration or an allegory with Isaac and Ishmael. So why is this important? For one, this is an amazing point to be made. Using Isaac and Ishmael, just kind of a narrative historical event, and saying that God was actually intending to make a point that is relevant in the conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, it demonstrates that God was always anticipating the fulfillment of his plan. That it wasn't that Jesus' coming was an accident or something that happened just without being anticipated, but it demonstrates God was always looking to the fulfillment of his plan and even providentially working with circumstances to demonstrate principles and lessons within the fulfillment of that plan and even to give solutions to problems that would come on the other end of that plan. So it's not just that he's revealing that the law anticipated these things, it's that it also illustrates the solution to the conflict in verse 30. So the solution with Ishmael persecuting Isaac, Ishmael who was born of the flesh, not according to promise. If you remember God promised Abraham a son would be born to him through whom his promise would come. It didn't happen very quickly. And so Sarah said, well, take Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave, have children through her, and maybe that will be the fulfillment. Hagar bore Ishmael, and God affirmed to Abraham that he would bless Ishmael, but but Ishmael would not be the son who would inherit the promises. It would be a son born by promise through Sarah. When Isaac was born, the son of promise, Ishmael began persecuting Isaac. And again, the solution, verse 30, cast out the bondwoman and her son. So the value of the law. If a person is to think the law is an authority that must still be kept. I think this, this isn't just something relevant back then. There are still so many religions now and even Christian religions that advocate you've got to keep the Sabbath. Jewish holidays like the Passover, you've got to keep a form of that. I study with a lot of people who believe those things. And it's, it's ironic that in the New Testament, those are some of the most relevantly just spoken against issues that, that you see in the New Testament. But what I, what I run into is oftentimes what's carried with those beliefs is an overall misunderstanding of the purpose of the law that diminishes its value to an extreme. Um, and so I think that's what Paul is getting to with the Jewish teachers that were in the Galatian churches as well, is not only do they not understand the law, they're completely diminishing the value of what is there by presuming it's still an active religious authority. But if it's viewed as a testimony, as a tool that points to righteousness in Christ and illustrating and enhancing spiritual points and spiritual realities that are true in Christ. And if it enforces New Testament truths, then its value is exalted. Who knew, verse 21 through 31, that Sarah having a son by God's promise, Hagar having a son, not by promise, but just by the flesh, that those two children would serve as an allegory for the fact that when Christ would come, the Jewish nation would still exist and be practicing the law 
while Christianity was spreading, not only would they exist simultaneously, one would persecute the other. Not only that, but that the one would need to be cast off for the other one to thrive. So I want to end the lesson on a bit of a somber invitation. Do you know how many years it would be that the Jewish nation would even last after this was written? Galatians was written about 55 AD. Jerusalem in a grisly, brutal, violent, slow way in AD 70, 15 years from the time that this was written, Rome brutally ransacked and destroyed Jerusalem. That's something that Jesus talked openly about is coming. The apostles talked openly about it. So it's not that the Jewish nation was better than ever now that Jesus has come. And now Jewish people could not only have faith in Christ, but finally we could keep the law and preserve our religion and our culture. No. What was happening was a temporary exodus of the Jewish people, and it was on a tight time frame. It's not that the religion of the Jewish people in the temple was better than ever and was going through a renaissance. It's that it was on its way out and was being cast out. And one was soon going to end violently so that the other could have the freedom to properly thrive. God is jealous for the work that he's done through his son. God is jealous for being able to bless his people and obtain a singular devotion, mutual devotion, between him and his people. We need to learn to be jealous as well. We need to understand faith, the nature of faith. We need to value what it means to live a life filled with the Spirit and based in the Spirit so that we have the discretion and the wisdom and the care and concern to be able to defend our faith on a personal level, but also to defend our growth as a local church in a world that is steeped in ideologies, philosophies, and beliefs that all contradict what God has done. God help us to grow in these ways and to live lives again that are based in promise, faith, and a spirit. If you're here this morning and there's anything that can be done for you um, in your relationship with God, whether that be to obey the gospel this morning and to die with Christ in baptism, that you could live a life that is based in Christ and faith, um, or if it's to confess sin or ask for prayers of the church, we reserve this time as we stand and sing the invitation song.